Welcome, and thank you for joining Latter-day Stonecatchers, where we believe the gospel is love-centered and stones should be caught and never thrown. My name is Jeff, and whether you're joining through YouTube or the podcast, I'm glad you're here. This week, we are continuing our study of the Sermon on the Mount with Matthew chapters 6 and 7. Some of the ideas found in Matthew chapter 7 we already discussed last week because they're also found in Luke chapter 6, which is commonly called the Sermon on the Plain. But don't worry, it won't just be more of the same. I have some additional thoughts and really great quotes to go along with the powerful ideas found in Matthew chapter 7. Before we jump into Matthew chapter 6, let's remember what Jesus has just taught in Matthew chapter 5. He's given his disciples six examples of what the old law says and how he is expanding, refining, or elaborating on how we can follow that law more fully. He isn't destroying the law, he is fulfilling the law. And the last of those six items found in Matthew chapter 5 was to love our enemies. Not just to love our neighbors and hate our enemies, but to love our enemies. And even to be perfect in the way that we give our love to everybody. Now, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives them three more examples of how they should do things a little bit differently than maybe they've seen them done in the past. The first example that Jesus gives is the performance of alms. He says, starting in Matthew chapter 6 verse 1, Take heed that you do not your alms before men, to be seen of them, otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have the glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. It should be noted that the word alms can be used to refer to not only monetary donations made to the church or to a religious cause, but also any charitable service that we're performing. Alms isn't just about money. And what Jesus is teaching here is that when we do that, we shouldn't sound a trumpet or we shouldn't blow our own horn to make sure that people are noticing the things that we're doing. When we do that, we have received our reward, as Jesus says, but if we do these things in secret, our Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. And another word that's important to look at is the word hypocrite. In verse 2 it says that we should not sound a trump as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. Now the word hypocrite has obviously taken a very negative meaning in our modern language. The original Greek word here was actually used to refer to kind of an actor, a stage actor who wore a mask to portray a certain person as part of a performance. And that word also doesn't necessarily mean that the acts being performed by this individual are insincere. The person performing these acts may sincerely believe that what they're doing is what they should be doing, that it's the right thing. The problem comes that as they do it, it takes on more of a performance. They want to make sure that those around them see what they're doing, even if their motivation for doing it is true and right. I think in modern day language, when we use the word hypocrite, we often mean that that individual doesn't even believe in what they're doing it, they're only doing it for show. But that may or may not be the case in the way that Jesus uses the word here. His point is, when we're doing good things, we shouldn't be putting on any sort of performance or do anything extra to make sure that the people around us notice. In fact, we should be trying to do them in secret. When I think about this, I can't help but remember all of the times that Jesus told people right after he'd healed them with some incredible miracle not to tell anyone. Now, I don't think that any of these people listened, but Jesus wanted those alms, those acts, to be performed in secret. 
His reason for healing somebody wasn't to gain fame and notoriety. His reason for healing somebody was to bless their life individually. And our motivation for doing any good thing, whether it's a donation of money or acts of service, should be the same. One other quick note, you may remember from the previous chapter that Jesus actually told his disciples in chapter 5 verse 14 that they were the light of the world and that when you have a light you shouldn't put it under a bushel but in fact on a candlestick so that it can give light to everyone that we should let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works. This seems to be in direct contradiction with what Jesus is teaching in the next chapter that our alms should be done in secret. So how do we reconcile these two things? To me the key comes in the very next phrase in those verses about light. It says that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. If people are seeing the things that we're doing, our hope should be that that will cause them to glorify their heavenly parents. Not to glorify us in any way, but to glorify our heavenly parents. Whereas in chapter 6, the bad example given says that they have done these things for the glory of men. That's the difference. Are the things we're doing for the glory of our heavenly parents or for the glory and praise of those around us? The good things that we're doing, the charitable donations that we are making, should be between us and our heavenly parents. And while we each may interpret the best way to do that a little bit differently, what's important is that when we do these things, it's for the glory of our heavenly parents. I'll give you a quick personal example. When I donate any money to the church, I've started doing it in a way that it's not even on my ward record. I once overheard some people in one of my wards discussing how much certain members within the ward had donated because they had access to the financials for the ward. First, it should be said that that's highly inappropriate. Second, from that moment on, I decided that the amount that I was donating or not donating to the church was completely between me and my heavenly parents. And I've started doing it in a way that it does not show up on my ward record. And I think that that's okay. It's a little bit interesting at the end of the year when I go to tithing declaration and that sheet is mostly blank. I'm asked if I'm a full tithe payer and I say yes, but that's really between me and my heavenly parents. Nobody else needs to know how much or how little I donate. I donate when, where, and how I believe in and how I'm comfortable with based on my relationship with my heavenly parents and I can confidently answer that question, yes. So you do what works for you, but don't be afraid to keep your alms between you and your heavenly parents. The next of these four items, sorry, I think I said three earlier, but there's actually four. The next of these four items is prayer. This chapter is actually where we find the Lord's Prayer, but before we get to that, let's read Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. It says, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites, there's that word again, or the actors, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou prayest, Enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. And I love this next phrase, mostly in other translations, but it says, But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions, as the heathen do. But in the NRSV, instead of saying to avoid vain repetitions, it says to not heap up empty phrases. I love that imagery with our prayers. Are we heaping up empty phrases? Or are, or are we having true conversation and relationship with our heavenly parents? When I read these verses, I couldn't help but think of King Hezekiah in the Hebrew Bible. Now, I know some of us may be excited that we've left the Hebrew Bible behind. I love it. There are so many incredible lessons there. Let's talk about Hezekiah for just a minute. 
So if we turn back to 2 Kings chapter 19, and you may remember this story because it's such a great one. The children of Israel are essentially under siege from one of the most feared warlords of the time, Rabshakeh. They're hiding behind these walls. The Assyrians have crushed everything else around them and have now laid siege on King Hezekiah and his people. In the previous chapter, 2 Kings chapter 18, Rabshakeh has just given a long-winded speech for everybody to hear in which he essentially tells them that there's no way that their king, their god, or anybody else can save them from the destruction that's about to come. And so he tells them to just surrender, to just give up and surrender. King Hezekiah doesn't know what to do. In chapter 19, verse 1, it says he went to the house of the Lord, and then in verse 2, it says he sent one of his servants to the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah tells Hezekiah's servant to relay the message. This is in 2 Kings 19, verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, Be not afraid of the words which thou hast heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, and shall return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So Isaiah promises Hezekiah through his servant that everything's going to be okay, to be not afraid. But then Rabshakeh decides he's not done intimidating Hezekiah and his people. He actually sends a personal letter to Hezekiah to tell him once again all of the terrible things that will happen to the people and to tell Hezekiah that there is nothing he can do, that their God will not save them, that he cannot save them. He also tells them all the terrible things they've done to the people all around and tells Hezekiah that he should just give up. To say that Hezekiah is frightened or worried would have to be a massive understatement. So what does he do next? The prophet has told Hezekiah that God says he should not be afraid and that everything will be okay. And then next, the point of the story and how I think it relates to prayer is in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 14. And Hezekiah received the letter of the hand of the messengers and read it. This is what he did next. And Hezekiah went up into the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. I love that description of prayer. Hezekiah is definitely not about to heap up empty phrases, as Jesus calls it in Matthew chapter 6. Instead, he is spreading it before the Lord. He is putting it all out there. He isn't holding anything back. Even though he's already been told by Isaiah the prophet not to fear that everything's going to be all right, Hezekiah is not afraid to approach his heavenly parents in the temple to spread it before them and to tell him how worried he is how he doesn't know what to do and how he is afraid for his people. He doesn't go to God with an empty and insincere prayer. Instead, he goes to God to have an open, honest conversation where he can talk about his fears and his hopes. And what happens next? God doesn't send a rebuke to Hezekiah saying, why did you come and talk to me about this again? I already told you through Isaiah, everything's going to be fine. No. Isaiah sends a messenger to Hezekiah in verse 20 and says, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, that which thou hast prayed to me, I have heard. And then he tells him again that everything will be okay. We should say that unfortunately prayers don't always work out that way. We don't always get the answer that we're looking for, that we're praying for. But what I love about this example is the way that Hezekiah was not afraid to go and spread it before the Lord. It's the exact opposite of what Jesus is talking about, not heaping up empty phrases, not using vain repetitions. If there is something in our life that we are concerned about, that we are worried about, 
our heavenly parents understand that. We should not be afraid in our prayers to be sincere, honest, open about those things that we are struggling with. That is the kind of prayer that they want. Not empty phrases, not vain repetitions, honest, sincere conversation with our heavenly parents. Now back to Matthew chapter 6, I love that Jesus Christ actually gives an example of prayer. And I'll be honest, I really wish that we focused more on the Lord's Prayer within our church. I think that's something that other Christians do a little bit better than we do. The Lord's Prayer is so powerful. Let's go through it line by line. Starting in Matthew chapter 6 verse 9, Jesus says, After this manner therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. I want to pause there for a moment and just say a few quick words about God's kingdom. We've talked about this in a few other episodes, but I think the idea of the kingdom that Jesus is establishing is so powerful. It's not a kingdom of power or influence. It's a kingdom where everybody has everything that they need, where people can receive healing and mercy and love and forgiveness. And I want to reference just a couple of scriptures about this kingdom. The first is one that we've referenced before. It's Moses chapter 7 verse 18. This is one of the best descriptions that we have of Zion or God's kingdom and what it is that we're trying to establish and what I think Jesus was showing us when he was here. Moses chapter 7 verse 18 says, And the Lord called his people Zion because they were of one heart and one mind and dwelt in righteousness and there was no poor among them. That is what the kingdom of God is. And if we want an example of that from the Book of Mormon, we can look in 4th Nephi chapter 1 verses 2 and 3 where it gives a little bit more detail about what this kingdom looked like. And it came to pass in the 30 and 6th year the people were all converted unto the Lord upon all the face of the land, both Nephites and Lamanites, and there were no contentions and disputations among them, and every man did deal justly one with another. And they had all things in common among them. Therefore, there were not rich and poor, bond and free, but they were all made free and partakers of the heavenly gift. That is the kingdom that we should be establishing, one where there are no contentions, no disputations, where we deal justly with everyone, where there are no rich and no poor, no bond and no free, but, when, but a place where we have all things in common, not only material things, but also spiritual things, mercy, forgiveness, and love because we are all partakers of the heavenly gift. That's the kingdom that Jesus is praying about in the Lord's Prayer. That's what he is referring to when he says, Thy kingdom come. That's what we should be praying for. That's what we should be working for. And then Jesus goes on in his prayer. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And I think those verses we read about his kingdom are perfect examples of his work being done in heaven as well as here on earth. That we need to be working to establish this kingdom where all are equal, where all are treated the same, where all are partakers of the heavenly gift. Next he says, give us this day our daily bread. And we're going to get into this idea in more detail later on in the chapter when Jesus talks about not laying up treasures on earth, but instead laying up treasures in heaven. So we'll leave that for a minute. Next he says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Let's remember that in the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 5 verse 7, one of the Beatitudes was, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This is definitely a theme within the Sermon on the Mount, that we are forgiven as we forgive, that we obtain mercy as we give mercy. 
And remember from the Sermon on the Plain, Luke chapter 6, verse 36, rather than be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect, Luke's version says, be ye therefore merciful, even as your Father is merciful. I also can't help but think about the parable of the unforgiving servant, which is found in Matthew chapter 18. You may remember this story, and Jesus gave it in response to Peter's question of how often he should forgive. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, Peter asks, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say unto thee, until seven times, but until seventy times seven. And then he tells this story about a certain king and two servants. One servant owes the king a massive sum of money, goes to the king and asks for patience and promises to pay him all. In verse 27, it says, Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. He didn't just take his promise that he would pay everything back. It says here that the king forgave him. But then what did this servant do? He turned around, found somebody who owed him a minuscule amount of money compared to the debt that had just been forgiven of him, and demanded that person be thrown in prison. In verse 30 it says, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. His fellow servants saw this, told the king what had been done. The king called his servant back and said this in verse 32, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldst not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant? And his lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. And here's the lesson in verse 35. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Jesus is teaching us in multiple places that we will be forgiven as we forgive. And Jesus includes that as part of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. One of my favorite quotes is from President Uchtdorf. I know I've mentioned it here before, but it says, Remember, heaven is filled with those who have this in common. They are forgiven, and they forgive. And the prayer goes on, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. We went through that a little bit slowly and choppy, so I want to read through the entire thing without stopping. And I'll read the King James Version, but then I'm also going to read a really cool sort of retranslation that Brian McLaren did, one of my favorite Christian authors. So here's the King James Version. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now I'll read you Brian McLaren's retranslation. Our Father above us and all around us, may your unspeakable name be revered. Now, here on earth, may your commonwealth come. On earth as in heaven, may your will be done. Give us today our bread for today. Forgive us our wrongs as we forgive. Lead us away from the perilous trial. Liberate us from the evil. For the kingdom is yours and yours alone. The power is yours and yours alone. The glory is yours and yours alone. Now and forever. Amen. I find the words and the way that it's phrased in that version very powerful as well. 
All right, so those are the first two items that Jesus mentions in this chapter, alms and prayer. The next one is fasting. And for sake of time, we're not gonna to spend too long on this one, but the theme is very similar. When we fast, we should not do it in a way to make sure that we are noticed by others. But instead, we should anoint our head, we should wash our face, and we should not try to appear to others to fast. But instead, our motivation to be fasting should be to improve and increase our relationship with the divine as well as to bless the lives of others. That's what we should fast for. And the fourth thing that Jesus mentions in this chapter is treasure. I think this is an important one because, as you may have noticed, in each of the previous three it says that our Father which seeth in secret shall reward us openly. I think sometimes that promise can be taken the wrong way. Let's read some of these verses about treasure and then I'll tell you what I mean. Matthew chapter 6 verse 19 says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, the whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. Now verse 24 sort of continues with this theme, but I want to pause here and talk about these verses for just a moment. Each of the three previous things that Jesus has told us we need to make sure that we're doing for pure intentions and to make sure that it's only for the glory of our heavenly parents, he has promised that our Father which seeth in secret shall reward us openly. Here, and I think it's important that this one is last, he is warning us that we should not seek treasures on earth. I think we could easily take that to mean that those promised blessings that our Father will give us openly are not going to be wealth or material blessings. Or if they are, for whatever reason, because certainly our heavenly parents could give that as a blessing if they deem that to be right, that should never be our motivation. There's this dangerous concept within the church and Christianity as a whole called the prosperity gospel, which is if I am righteous, if I follow the commandments, if I do these things that Jesus is teaching, I will be blessed from heaven with material wealth. I will prosper. Now, none of us can say with any certainty whether material wealth that an individual has received is a blessing from heaven or not. But what we can say, or at least I feel like I can say with confidence, is that material wealth or prosperity is never a sign of righteousness or God's favor. And the reason that's so important is because the inverse cannot be true. That lack of material wealth is a sign of unrighteousness or disfavor with God. That cannot be true. In fact, Jesus tells us in this same sermon that blessed are the poor, blessed are those that hunger and thirst. So we should never think that material wealth and prosperity is a sign of favor from God. We just never should. In fact, this scripture teaches us that if we are building up material wealth, that we're not doing it the right way. Think back to the Lord's Prayer. It says, give us today our bread for today. We should not be stockpiling when people around us are suffering. We should be trusting and believing that our heavenly parents will care for us as we care for other people. That's what Jesus is talking about here. We are not supposed to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth. 
we lay up treasure in heaven by blessing the lives of those around us and helping them come to know the love that their heavenly parents have for them. There's a fantastic short quote from one of my favorite books by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called The Cost of Discipleship. He says in relation to these verses, simply, earthly goods are given to be used, not to be collected. And I think that is a perfect summary of this verse. If we receive material wealth, it has been given to us for the sole purpose of blessing the lives of others, not for stockpiling, but for sharing. And when we do that, our whole body, as it says in the next line, is full of light. And when we don't do that, our body is full of darkness because our hearts have been set on a treasure that will not bring us light. I want to share another quote from that book, Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is really one of my favorite books. It is one of the few books that I can honestly say has had a significant impact on my life. This book, The Cost of Discipleship, was one of the first books that really changed the way that I viewed the gospel. I highly recommend this book. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, and if we ask how we are to know where our hearts are, the answer is just as simple. Everything which hinders us from loving God above all things and acts as a barrier between ourselves and our obedience to Jesus is our treasure, the place where our heart is. So he's telling us we can easily know where our heart lies because anything that is preventing us from loving God and obeying Jesus, loving our neighbor, that's where our treasure is. That's where our heart is. We need to remove those barriers and we need to truly set our hearts upon our heavenly parents and we need to truly love God and love our neighbor. And the next thing that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, this verse will likely be familiar. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon, or ye cannot serve God and wealth. And you may get tired of this book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but I have to read you this quote that he said about this verse. He says, The life of discipleship can only be maintained as long as nothing is allowed to come between Christ and ourselves. Neither the law, nor personal piety, nor even the world. The disciple always looks only to his master, never to Christ and the law, Christ and religion, Christ and and the world. He avoids all such notions like the plague. Only by following Christ alone can he preserve a single eye. His eye rests wholly on the light that comes from Christ and has no darkness or ambiguity in it. I love the way he talks about how we should make sure that our eye is single on Jesus Christ, that it should never be Christ and something else. Whatever that other thing is should not be there. The three examples that he gave were the law, personal piety, and religion. Now, those may be good things. The law and religion can help point us to Jesus Christ, but our eye should be single on him, never looking to both Jesus Christ and the law, or both Jesus Christ and religion, or both Jesus Christ and personal piety, single to Jesus Christ, and then our bodies will be full of light. Next, Jesus reminds those that he's teaching that God takes care of his creations. In verse 28, he says, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. He's reminding us that we can rely on our heavenly parents, that we don't need 
to worry. That's so hard not to do. In verse 31, he says, Take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. And then the key in verse 33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. We need to pause there for a moment as well and remind ourselves that this is also not the prosperity gospel. Yes, Jesus is promising that if we seek the kingdom of God first, that all these things will be added unto us. But what are the all these things that he's referring to? The examples that he just gave were what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, and the clothing we're going to have. It seems to me that that's the all these things that Jesus is referring to. He's not saying seek the kingdom of God and then we'll have a massive bank account or we'll have material wealth or anything else. He's saying seek the kingdom of God and you'll have enough to eat, drink, and to clothe yourself. I also love that in this verse it says seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We already mentioned what the kingdom of God is earlier in this episode. It's a place where everybody has all things in common, where we are one in heart and in mind, where we come together in love and worship for our heavenly parents, and there are no poor among us. That's what the kingdom of God is. And then when it says to seek his righteousness, let's remember how Jesus defined righteousness. The scriptures that I think of first every time I see the word righteousness now is the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25. And I know I've mentioned this before too, but it bears repeating. Jesus defined the righteous in Matthew chapter 5 verse 35 as those who feed the hungry, give drinks to the thirsty, take in strangers, clothe the naked, visit the sick, and visit the prisoners. That's how he defines righteousness. Those are the people that Jesus then lets into his kingdom. Those are the sheep. So if we put that into the context of the verse in Matthew chapter 6, that if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then we'll have all things added unto us. What I believe Jesus is saying is, if we seek to establish the kingdom of God where everybody has all things in common, and if we seek his righteousness, which is feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting prisoners and those who are sick, then we will also have enough to drink, enough to eat, and clothes to wear. Why is that? Because we have assisted in establishing the kingdom of God where everybody has those things. I don't think anybody's a millionaire. I think everybody has what they need and nobody worries about having more than that. That's the kingdom of God. That's the righteousness we should be seeking. And Jesus can make that promise First of all, because he's God, but also if we have established that kingdom, that situation exists. There are no poor among us and everybody has what they need. All right, that's the end of Matthew chapter 6. Let's talk about some things in Matthew chapter 7. I love this chapter as well. It starts out with one of the more well-known verses in possibly all of scripture. Verse 1 says, Judge not that ye be not judged. As I said, I know we already talked about not judging as part of the last podcast because that teaching is also contained in Luke chapter 6. But I'd really like to share a couple of powerful quotes about this idea from, you guessed it, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. You guys should really buy this book, or maybe you don't need to because I've read enough of it to you already. But these are two things that he says about judging. Discipleship does not afford us a point of vantage from which to attack others. We come to them with an unconditional offer of fellowship, with the single-mindedness of the love of Jesus. And then later he says this, Judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. 
By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. Okay, you know what? I was going to stop there, but this entire paragraph is so powerful, I have to share it with you guys. I'm sorry, this quote's a little bit long, but I promise it's worth it. Here we go, starting from the top. Judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. But in the love of Christ, we know all about every conceivable sin and guilt. For we know how Jesus suffered and how all men have been forgiven at the foot of the cross. Christian love sees the fellow man under the cross and therefore sees with clarity. If when we judged others, our real motive was to destroy evil, we should look for evil where it is certain to be found, and that is in our own hearts. But if we are on the lookout for evil in others, our real motive is obviously to justify ourselves, for we are seeking to escape punishment for our own sins by passing judgment on others, and are assuming by implication that the word of God applies to ourselves in one way and to others in another. All this is highly dangerous and misleading. We are trying to claim for ourselves a special privilege which we deny to others. But Christ's disciples have no rights of their own or standards of right and wrong which they could enforce with other people. They have received nothing but Christ's fellowship. Therefore, the disciple is not to sit in judgment over his fellow man because he would wrongly usurp the jurisdiction. We should never judge others. We just shouldn't do it. It's not our place. Jesus has commanded us not to judge. And I love these words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, reminding us that as disciples, that discipleship does not grant us some sort of superiority from which we can judge others. When we do that, we are trying to deny others access to grace, which they are just as entitled to as we are. None of us have earned it. None of us deserve it. But Jesus Christ and our heavenly parents, in their form of divine justice, have granted it to all of us. We absolutely have to stop denying it to other people and realize that we are all equally dependent on grace and mercy to return and live with our heavenly parents. We should never judge. The next verses in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount are the famous moat and the beam verses. This is another concept that we discussed last week, so if you want to listen in more detail, go back to that podcast. But just a reminder that if we have thoughts that maybe we don't have a beam in our own eye, or maybe we only have a moat so that we must have some sort of responsibility to help those that actually have a beam in their eye, it is in that moment that we have inserted the largest beam in our own eye that could ever exist. If we're trying to remove a moat from another's eye, we will always have a beam in our eye, no matter how righteous we have been or just think we have been in every other aspect of our lives. If we seek to remove a moat from another's eye, we have inserted the beam of judgment in our own eye. Later on in chapter 7, Jesus references the straight gate. And I really want to touch on these verses. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Now, in the Book of Mormon, it defines that gate as repentance and baptism. That's in 2 Nephi chapter 31, and I think that can be helpful, but I also definitely think there is more to say here. 
In 2 Nephi 31:17, it says, Wherefore, do the things which I have told you I have seen that your Lord and your Redeemer should do. For for this cause have they been shown unto me, that ye might know the gate by which ye should enter. For the gate by which ye should enter is repentance and baptism by water, and then cometh a remission of your sins by fire and by the Holy Ghost. So the Book of Mormon is teaching that the gate by which we enter is repentance and baptism. And I love that because we're talking about the gate that puts us on the path that leads us back to our heavenly parents. And the reason I love that is not because of what the gate is, but because of what we promise to do when we enter that gate. And that can be found in Mosiah chapter 18. What I'm talking about is the baptismal covenant. When we are baptized, we promise in Mosiah chapter 18 verses 8 and 9 that we will bear one another's burdens that they may be light, that we will mourn with those that mourn, that we will comfort those that stand in need of comfort, and that we will stand as witnesses of God, who is love, at all times and in all things and in all places that we may be in, even until death. Nothing, in my mind, could match more perfectly with what Jesus is teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount and by example throughout his ministry. He mourned with those that mourned. He comforted those that stood in need of comfort. He bore burdens that they may be light. So the significance of the gate isn't what the posts are that we walk through. The significance of the gate is what we are promising to our heavenly parents to do when we enter that gate. Jesus told his mission was to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal broken hearts, to visit the captives, to heal the blind. That's what he told us in Luke chapter 4 that he was here to do as part of his earthly ministry. Of course, in addition to his perfect atonement, the sacrifice that granted us grace and mercy so that we can return to live with our heavenly parents, but also to do all of these things that we promise to do when we enter this gate. And this is an important part about the covenant path. The covenant path is not a list of milestones. Staying on the covenant path means walking the path, living the promises contained in these covenants. I think it's significant that back to the Sermon on the Mount, right after this teaching about the gate, Jesus teaches in verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. I think we could reword that a little bit to say, not everyone who has entered into that gate will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who has been baptized will enter into the kingdom of heaven but those who do the will of my Father which is in heaven, those who do the things contained in that covenant, those who comfort those that stand in need of comfort, those who mourn with those that mourn, those that bear up burdens that they may be light, those that stand as witnesses of God and love in all things, in all times, and in all places, even until death. That is who Jesus is saying will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not the people who walked through the gate, but the people who live the promises that are made at the gate. And to be clear, I think you can live those promises whether you've been baptized as a member of this church or not. And in my opinion, those who do live those promises will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Verse 22 says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Based on this scripture, there will be people who have prophesied in his name, cast out devils in his name, and done wonderful works in his name, who the Lord will say he never knew them. 
We won't go back and read the parable of the sheep and the goats again, but let's remind ourselves of those who Jesus knew and those who he did not know. Those who he knew are those who saw someone in need and met that need rather than judging their circumstances. Those who he did not know, those who did not enter into the kingdom of heaven, the goats, were those who saw needs and did not meet them and likely rather judged their circumstances. It doesn't matter what else we're doing, even if they would be considered wonderful works or casting out devils or prophesying in his name. Jesus refers to those things here as iniquity if we are not doing the will of our Father. As Paul teaches, without charity, we are nothing. That's the same teaching right here. And then using imagery that has stuck with us for centuries or millennia, Jesus Christ teaches about the wise men and the foolish man. If we are wise, we will build our house upon the rock. No matter what happens, no matter what comes, no matter how high the floods are, our house will stand. The rock, of course, is Jesus Christ. This is another thing that we talked about last week, but another thing that bears repeating. The rock that we build on should always be Jesus Christ and nothing else. Other things can point us to him. The church, our leaders, our family, the writings and teachings of other people, all of those things can point us to the Savior Jesus Christ, but we should not build on them. We should build only and always on the Savior Jesus Christ. He is our rock. He will never fail us. Anything else that we build on is sand. It doesn't matter how good it is, we should never build on it. The only thing we can trust to never fail is our Savior Jesus Christ. And I hope more than anything that Latter-day Stone Catchers is something that points you toward Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. He is our healer. He is our Redeemer. We can always have faith in him because he will never fail. Please always remember that and remember that I love you, God loves you, catch stones, don't throw them. Thank you again for joining the Latter-day Stonecatchers podcast. I really appreciate you coming back to listen each week. If you're enjoying the podcast, I would ask that if you're comfortable to please share it on social media or with your family and friends. Because the more stonecatchers we have in our congregations and classrooms, the better we'll be. If you haven't already, I would also really appreciate a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Ratings and reviews go such a long way in helping people know that they can trust the podcast. And I would really appreciate you helping others know that they can. Thanks again for listening.